In Christ, love and hope, dear fellow redeemed. I got one of those emails this week from a concerned Christian who keeps tabs on the political climate in America. And since we are looking at a change of presidency, uh, there are a lot of emails flying around about agendas that people are hoping that they can push through Congress now that we'll have a new president from the other party. And I want to read to you some excerpts from one of the emails. Here's, here's what the, cons- the, the concerned email says. A Democratic Political Action Committee representing, in quotes, secular values issued an agenda that they hope that the new president, Joe Biden, would reverse many of the President Trump's advances for religious liberty and, in quote, restore a vision of constitutional secularism, in quote. Constitutional secularism. The Secular Democrats of America, that's the name of the PAC, the Secular Democrats of America, and their representatives from Congress, Jamie Raskin, a Democrat from Maryland, and Jared Huffman, a Democrat from California, members of the Congressional Free Thought Caucus, they were behind the 28-page document which was issued Monday this last week. Remember, Political Action Committee is not a, a government uh, entity. It is a, a group of people concerned that hope by being Political Action Committee they can push through an agenda. Here's what their 28-page document had in it, some summaries. It would ban religious organizations from participating in government programs, support governors who want to close down churches amid the COVID pandemic, require new disclosures from churches, overturn religious rights precedents such as the Hobby Lobby case. I don't know what that is anymore, but maybe you do. Prevent mention of creationism in education and work for a de-radicalization of Christian nationalism. The, the PAC wants to rid entirely of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was adopted in 1992 to, to protect religious expression. The document insists government funding should be non-sectarian, calling for restoring secularism to the nation and protecting non-theists. The plan that they propose calls America's motto, In God We Trust, a relic of McCarthyism and the anti-atheist hysteria of the 1950s, and says that references to Judeo-Christian values should be condemned. And it insists that politicians should not be allowed to say God and country. It calls for non-theists as chaplains in the military and appointment of a non-religious representative to the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom. Uh, I bring this up because I just want to point out that secularism and trying to push the idea of God aside is always going to be part of any kind of of, uh, government throughout the world for all of time. And you know why? Because in Romans chapter 8, it says that the sinful mind is hostile to God. So if a person does not have, and this is all in Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit living inside of them, at best, they will wink at the Word of God, and at worst, they will actually try to put in laws to, to censor it. You can see it throughout the Bible in the countries of Assyria and Babylon, even in Israel at times. Today... We go to the king of Judah named Ahaz, and we see him winking at the word of God, but really because he has some pretty big political problems in, uh, pending with two enemies 
breathing down his neck. When the prophet shows up to give the word of God, he kind of censors it and says, no, I, I, I really wouldn't bother you or God for a message because he's thinking this is a political issue and he's rather atheistic in his functionality. And, and I want you to see this, what God does here. Because God is passionate about reaching humanity even if humanity is thinking that God really is irrelevant. And, and out of all of this comes the beautiful prophecy of a virgin giving birth to a child. Right in the middle of a king feigning like he's respecting the prophet, but actually he's disdaining the prophet as being irrelevant to his current crisis. So here we come. It's in Isaiah chapter 7, and it's the, it, it encases that beautiful promise of the coming Savior born of a virgin. So the prophet is uh, Isaiah is sent to King Ahaz by God. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz through Isaiah. Isaiah says, ask the Lord your God for a sign because you're worried about these two enemies that are threatening your country. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz, the king said, I, I, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test by testing him to give me a sign. He's feigning respect, but he actually has disdain for the word. Then Isaiah said, you can almost see him pounding the table. Hear now, you house of David, meaning the king. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you now try the patience of my God also? Because he wants to give you a message and you don't want it. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, even though you wouldn't ask for it. The virgin will conceive and give birth to his son and will call him Emmanuel. He, the son, will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings that you are dreading, who are threatening you, they will already be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king who will bomb those two countries, Aram and Israel, that are breathing down your neck. He'll bring that king down and he'll come with his men and he will devour them. That's what Isaiah is saying. This is a prophecy that's actually telling Ahaz the, that God is going to be involved in the affairs of the world, with the politics of the day, and he's going to bring an enemy against his, uh, the enemies of Judah. One of the enemies is the northern tribes who've become very secular. Israel, the ten lost tribes. The other one is Aram. And, and in the middle of all this, though, comes, it's almost like a meteor just coming down in the middle of a very calm day. Comes this meteor, a virgin will give birth to a child and he will choose the right and re reject the wrong while he's growing up eating curds and honey. But before all this happens, the guys you're worried about, they'll be laid waste. And all of that came true. Uh, the Assyrians did come down and they, they obliterated Israel. And Israel would never be a threat to Judah again. Now Assyria became a threat to Judah. But then God messed around with Assyria and kept them from annihilating the remnant of Israel called Judah. And so God was guiding history. And all of this happened before Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Isn't it interesting, though, that the prophecy about the Virgin 
comes like a meteor in the middle of a political situation. Now, just for a moment, I want you to think about what, that, what application we'd have for today. We are in the middle of political situations all the time. Uh, emails like the one I just read to you is evidence of that. We are in the middle of an election year of one of the hardest years uh, on record for our nation, 2020. And we've got all kinds of political propaganda and political forecasting and political debate. We have a split Congress and we have a, a, a president that's not going to be probably the president of the majority of the Senate. And we have a country that's electrified by all kinds of comments and worries about what political action committees might influence the executive branch and the presidency or the legislative branch with the, the Congress or the judicial branch. We have all kinds of rhetoric and we have, we have different news agencies that, can, that, that go different stripes. All of this <clears throat> makes us, it affects our economy and it makes us charged as Americans who are informed in the information age more so than any ancient Israelite informed like the kings were of old, it makes us worry and it makes us feel like the message of Christmas and of the Bible should only wink at because it really has very little to do with all of this that's really bothering us. But in fact, that's the very message that God gave King Ahaz because God's about a bigger agenda. But the irony of Christmas is that often in a world that's intoxicated with itself and its own events, it looks very small. When Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the entire Roman world would be taxed. Census took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And there's Mary and Joseph, a little poor couple in a little backwoods country of Galilee, and they have to go down to the city of David. But the prophecy had said the Messiah would have to be born in Bethlehem. And they go. And they have never had sex. They are engaged. And she is pregnant by the Holy Spirit. We just read it from Matthew chapter 1. And I've been alluding to Luke chapter 2. If you want to go look it up. And they go down there. And the prophecy is fulfilled. That was spoken to Ahaz through Isaiah. In the middle of Ahaz's political pandemic. A virgin will conceive and bear a child and give birth to a son. And it's a, it's a diminutive that Jesus is born in a little manger inn that's in a little village that's burgeoning with people because of the political upheaval in the Roman Empire, much like that of the, the days when the prophecy was first given. And only those whom God supernaturally invites with angels attend the birth. And the world winked at Jesus as if it wasn't anything all that big and it was the biggest happening from heaven to earth that will ever happen God became a human he became a human to save all of humanity Ahaz looked for a message from Isaiah that would talk about the salvation of himself and Judah God brought a message to Ahaz about the salvation of all of humanity from the devil from sin and from death a virgin will conceive and bear a child and give birth to a son. Ahaz winked at it. He tested God. Truth is, we have no evidence that it ever had much importance to his soul. 
from that day forward, he lived out his life. He faced God as his judge. Who knows if he trusted in the Redeemer that was promised or not. And I'm not concerned about Ahaz because the days of being concerned about Ahaz are long gone. I'm concerned about you and me. That our and our issues during this Christmas season would make us wink at God in a manger, born of a virgin. What, what, what kind of faith do we have that's dwarfed by anything in this world? It's easy to look at Ahaz and listen to the scripture and, and to think, man, what a fool, while playing the fool ourselves. And sometimes the kind of lather that we get worked up into is much closer to home in a much smaller kingdom of our own little house and our own little Christmas and our own little celebrations while the, the child in the manger who came to save us from the biggest things in life is only winked at. Here's another way of looking at it. Some of us are thinking about this might be our very last Christmas. The, the, maybe it's because we have medical reports that our, our life is coming to an end. Maybe it's just fear that it is. Maybe it's, but that is so big that it threatens to ruin our Christmas. We'll talk that way. When in fact, the message of Christmas is that thing that cannot be ruined. Instead, it changes everything about our life. It's the rescue God came to live with us to rescue us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a, a facet. Maybe if you've been with me very long at all, you've heard parts of this before. But it's appropriate today to, to, uh, to illustrate how to really grasp what's happening here at Christmas. You probably well know that I had a heart attack 14 years ago. It was a Labor Day weekend. It was Labor Day itself. And um, when I knew, I knew that I, with the chest pains and the weird left side radiating pain that I had something big was wrong, wondered if it was a heart attack. I had my wife drive me to the hospital while I was talking to a friend on the phone and wouldn't tell him what was going on. I was comforted by the fact that my wife was driving me and that I was distracted by the thoughts shared by my friend. When I got to the hospital, though, and I walked in and told them I was 43 years old having chest pains. And they ushered me past everybody waiting in the waiting room and into the hospital and did immediate EKG, which is a snapshot of your heart, and said, we're calling a cardiologist and a cardiology team. I knew I was in trouble. It wasn't 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And a doctor who was on call came. And then three people joined him that were on call. One was grocery shopping. One was celebrating Labor Day vacation day with their family. I don't know. They sent it on a lab called the cath lab. And they did a catheterization and found a huge blockage through a blood clot from broken off plaque. And they blasted it out and put a stent in. And at the end of that, that's when they explained to me that I was that close to physical death. That four-member team that were willing to leave their, their life to come and be with me comforted me more than my friend on the phone and my wife driving the car. You know why? Because they were able to save me. 
It was weeks later that I went to the hospital to visit a member of our church who was, of all places, in the same hospital, in the, in the same wing that I was, had been in, that's the cardiology wing. It was Christmas time. And I walked past uh, the nurse's desk, and they had a, a poster up with pictures of different crews from, that work in their hospital. And there was a snapshot. It's, the, it's, it's one of the times in my life that I was tempted to steal. It was before we had smartphones with cameras on them that really worked well. I wanted to take that snapshot home because when I looked in the snapshot, there was the doctor and the three-member team in the cath lab that had saved my life. And I thought, well, that's the best Christmas present ever because they were a comfort to me because they were able, willing and able to save me. That is just a small thing, though, compared to what Jesus did, who was willing and able to come to earth to save us. He didn't give up a holiday. He gave up heaven. He came and lived in a body so that he could refuse the wrong and do the right as a child, as an adult, and be the perfect sacrifice for me and for you. That is not something to wink at. Because in doing that, he conquered death, which would threaten any Christmas, and gave us eternal life. He is the judge with, before whom we must go, and he is the Savior that paid for all the sins that we would be judged for. He is God who's passionate. So passionate that he would meteor that message down to earth that a virgin would conceive and bear a child. By the way, a prophecy so amazing that the first time you hear it, it will stick in your head the rest of your life. Even if you don't believe it, you cannot deny, if you've ever heard it, that you have heard it. That the message of Christianity is that God was born of a virgin. People who cannot scientifically have a baby because God was involved supernaturally coming to earth. God did it in a way, even if it meteored into a very frantic life full of political discharge because he wanted us to, to, to get the message, hold on to the message. So this Christmas, you want to embrace a message? You want to embrace a meaningfulness? You want to embrace the real Christmas? Just look in the manger. Emmanuel. God is with us. God is with us. Able and willing. To redeem, restore, and replace this earth with heaven. What more would you want? Amen.